I don't think Americans are ever going to give up trashing the other side. Um, and I don't entirely know that they should. Uh, they, you know, rough political rhetoric is very American from the right. beginning, the first campaigns uh, for president in the United States. And I don't think it's realistic to aspire to give all that up. But I think that we can do it um, within an agreed upon arena of shared ideas. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time in eight years. Get your pass now at cliocloudconference.com. Today's guest is Ken White. Ken is a First Amendment litigator and criminal defense attorney at Brown, White and Osborne LLP in Los Angeles. He's a writer at pulphat.com, a blog devoted to law, politics and culture. And he's also the host of Make No Law, the First Amendment podcast and co-host of All the President's Lawyers podcast. Ken, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me here, Jack. So Ken, starting off, can you give us a bit of background on your career, both in the legal world and with your award-winning blog, Popat? Sure. Uh, so after law school, I clerked for a federal judge for a year, and then uh, I joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles as a rookie federal prosecutor. Uh, I spent about six years there and uh, then joined a big law firm, which was not really to my taste. And for the last 15 years, uh, or almost more now, um, I've been a small firm that a partner and I started back in 2005, doing about half and half criminal defense and uh, general civil litigation. Over that time, uh, because of my interest in it, I've built up a practice in First Amendment issues, uh, defamation, defense, and things like that. And uh, during that same time, I've kind of developed uh, writing, which is something I always enjoyed and always wanted to do. And really just by writing about topics that uh, interested me, interacting with other people, writing on the same topics and putting in the work. And one of the topics you've blogged about a lot is free speech and, and misinformation, how we protect ourselves and, and balance off those, in some cases, competing interests. And certainly in the, in the COVID-19 world, we've seen a real uptick in misinformation. We've had some pretty wild headlines just this week around uh, even the, the president retweeting uh, some, pretty, uh, some pretty destructive pieces of misinformation. Uh, and this is happening on, on social media platforms like Twitter and, and Facebook. What responsibility do you think social media platforms have to prevent the spread of misinformation? Well, I think we have to draw a distinction between legal responsibilities and moral responsibilities. So in general, they don't have any sort of legal responsibility to avoid that. They're not selling a sort of product where uh, misinformation about it uh, would be against the law, you know, uh, like uh, selling cigarettes or even a can of soup. You can't lie about what's in it. Uh, but 
as a, a place, a social media platform where people can come and talk, they don't have a legal responsibility to stop people from uh, talking about how all our health problems are traceable to demon semen or something like that. <laughs> right. I, I wish I you were joking. <laughs> I, I wish I were too. Um, there's very little about 2020 that if you say now your 2010 self wouldn't think that you've gone very heavily into drugs. Uh, so I do think there's a moral responsibility, though, and that moral responsibility is not terribly different than the moral responsibility we as individuals have when we speak. We have the legal right to say a whole lot of things, uh, just to give a popular example. We have the legal right uh, to spew racial invective and what would commonly be called hate speech. Uh, but I believe we have a moral responsibility not to do that. And so I think it's very arguable that major uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter have a moral responsibility to think about whether or not they want to be vehicles for massive propaganda campaigns, for life-threatening disinformation, and things like that. But I think it's the right call not to make that a legal responsibility. Maybe looking at this in a really specific way, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg famously said they don't have the right to be arbiters of truth. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Oh, it's a nonsense statement. Of course they have the right to be arbiters of truth, just the way I do in my living room. I can kick you out if you're coming into my living room and talking about uh, how the moon landing was faked or something like that. And Mark Zuckerberg can kick you off Facebook for any damn fool reason he wants. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, these other things are businesses uh, that have rights themselves. And part of that right is the right to build the type of uh, product, type of vehicle they want. They're making really decisions that are about marketing, about making money, and also about morals. So when they decide to uh, kick off some types of speech, they're making a decision about their public reputation, about having the type of platform uh, that people want to come to and want to use, and uh, about what they're willing to live with or not live with. And that, like most people's decisions, is a complicated mess of marketing uh, and money-making and morals. And how does hate speech and the regulation of hate speech enter into the equation here? In America, uh, it really doesn't. Uh, and that's because that in America, there really is no category called hate speech that's outside the protection of the First Amendment. You hear the slogan, hate speech is not free speech. Uh, under American law, that's simply not true. A lot of very despicable things are protected by the First Amendment, and many things that could be called hate speech are absolutely protected. Now, sometimes things that you might call hate speech fall into other exclusions from the First Amendment, whether it's a true threat or a direct incitement of immediate violence. But most things that we refer to as hate speech are First Amendment protected and platforms, uh, websites are not required by law and can't be required by law to take them down. So if you have to, if, if you had an audience, I'm, I'm curious with Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and, and had the opportunity to influence their thinking around how to strike this balance of allowing free speech, but also it's, it's, I'm hearing you say 
express their morals in a stronger way on their platform and almost be comfortable with the fact that their corporate values and what they allow to happen on the platform is a reflection of their own values. What, what would you, what would you say to them? Well, first I'd say, Mark, stop serving me ads for relaxed fit dockers. It's mean. <laughs> it's just not nice. You know, I'm trying, I'm making progress. That's the first thing I would say. Uh, the next thing I'd say is that I think they'd get more respect if they were more upfront about what they were doing. So Facebook and Twitter and others have sometimes tried to market themselves as free speech platforms. And, you know, that's no different really than any other product. Uh, you sell the sizzle, not the steak. There's always going to be bluster and puffery and things like that about how good your product is. I don't think that Facebook or Twitter's puffery about what their product is, is particularly worse than anyone else's. But I think that what they would be better off doing to rebut a lot of this stuff about how they're uh, censoring speech is to say, look, we're uh, private businesses. We make decisions about the type of community we want to run. Some of those decisions are about the type of speech we want to have here in our community. Um, you may not agree with those and that's fine. There are a lot of communities. You should find one you agree with, but we're making the decision not to have a place where there's certain types of propaganda, certain types of racial invective, things like that. That's part of our community building decision. In other words, ease up a little bit on the marketing angle of where the free speech platform, because that's just inviting the criticism of the tax they get. It seems like such an obvious approach. Is it just financial considerations you think that that leaves them a distance away from, from reaching that as a, an endpoint? Absolutely, and in two ways. One way is that um, you know they don't want to limit their audience too much. Uh, they don't want to uh, strike rules that drive people away too much uh, or that prevent people from coming on. But frankly, I don't think that's the primary reason uh, that they don't censor more. I think the primary reason is that it's difficult and expensive. Uh, when they automate it, it tends to produce dumb results. Uh, that just like anything you automate will produce dumb results. So you right. get arbit false right. positives, false negatives. Sure, you, you get arbitrary and capricious um, results from computers. You get people mass reporting things for political reasons that clearly are not actually a violation of rules. Uh, but the, the more human input you put into that, uh, the more expensive it is. So the more people they have looking at things, making some sort of human determination of whether this violates the rule, the less economically feasible it is. So one very powerful incentive not to have too many restrictions on speech on these websites is that it's expensive to implement them. Uh, and I suspect that's really what's going on. I mean, if you paid the way you do for Netflix to use Twitter, then maybe they could swing it, but you don't. And so the model of the more people we have on here, the more people we need uh, reading every tweet and moderating it is just not feasible. So one tweet that, that or one tweeter rather that's being uh, certainly having every tweet read is is President Trump and, and Twitter has taken some stronger positions around moderating content coming out of even his Twitter account recently. What is your position uh, and, and what do you think of Twitter 
fact-checking uh, President Trump's tweets, or in some cases, suppressing tweets that might be deemed to incite violence, for example? Look, it's their living room. Uh, this is a community they want to build. And I think their main problem with doing that is that it opens them up to criticism about, well, why aren't you checking other things? Why aren't you checking these 10 politicians saying things or these 10 commentators? Now, the easier response to that is those people aren't the leader of the free world with umpteen up million people following them and willing to do their bidding. So I, I think, again, this is a gut check from people at Twitter about what they can live with, uh, how they can look uh, themselves in the mirror. And they're feeling that some of these things are things they should do something about. That is uh, a collective decision by a group of people uh, that's very much like the decisions that you and I make about speech and about free association, about whether we keep going out to dinner with that dude who says racist stuff or whether or not we want to associate with someone who is politically really crazy. Uh, and we make the decisions. And when we make them, they're not particularly super rational. They're going to be subjective and based on taste. And I think companies do that too. It's also ultimately based on the taste of the people running the company mixed in with their sense of what makes money and what doesn't. Right. Let's talk about fake news next. Uh, we've seen an explosion in discussion around fake news. We see real news being treated as fake news. We see fake news being consumed as real news. Uh, and the net result seems to be that the, there's just growing distrust around media, around uh, even legitimate media sources in the public. Uh, what's your, your take on this trend that we've seen just really accelerate over the last few years? And do you think it's, it's helping or, or harming public discourse? Well, I think fake news like uh, mob or cancel culture or political correctness or uh, any uh, or privilege or, or any of these buzzwords uh, are things that can be used to avoid substantive argument. Uh, you call something fake news rather than engaging with it, explaining why it's not uh, valid or why it's not fact-based or, or whatever it is. Uh, I think it would be good if people were genuinely more skeptical of their news sources and were more informed consumers uh, willing to probe and ask questions and ask whether this news is really right, whether it's correct. And, you know, anyone who is uh, good at anything already does that on their topic. So, you know, if, if you know some topic, you're probably constantly appalled by how the news covers it. Uh, and you already feel this way on that one little subject. It would be good if everyone were skeptical like that about everything. On the other hand, I think that there's definitely a sort of uh, cultural argument going on that news is bad because journalists are bad. Uh, news is bad because the elite media establishment is bad. And that's a cultural argument and a political one. It's that the set of values and issues that typically are reported on by the media are not to be trusted. And you should instead trust uh, the guy with the tinfoil hat on YouTube who uh, says it's the lizard people. Uh, so I, I think that type of thing can be damaging. Um, I think the sort of lack of any 
cultural consensus about what the real facts are or where we look to to find out the real facts um, so it contributes to an atmosphere where you know we can't get along because we can't even agree on what the ground rule facts are uh, but unfortunately I, I think it's more that than a genuine sense of skepticism you know i'd be i'd be thrilled if people were to watch cnn and say wait is that true is that not true let's go out in a methodical way to ask why but i think most of the time people do that to news whether it's people who dismiss the drudge report out of hand or people who dismiss cnn out of hand it's more of a my side versus your side thing more of a cultural commitment than a, a real evaluation of the source and I, I know this is a, a short but a big question, but do you, do you see a path out of this? Do you, how do you think we, we move to being able to get back to having discussions and debates about the, the right things grounded in reality? Well, uh, I think by every individual taking responsibility for the way how they contribute to it. So that means uh, going about arguing or consuming news or engaging with the news the way you would like to see it done uh, more responsibly overall. And that's not easy. It is uh, very seductive just to dismiss uh, everything that comes from those sources, from those, those people that you don't like. Uh, and it's hard to engage them fairly. And certainly not every source out there is worth that. I don't think we need to fairly or seriously engage uh, the uh, demon seed uh, alien DNA lady. Uh, but, uh, excuse me, doctor lady. Um, <laughs> but I think we could in general, each make an effort to do a better job to, uh, to engage on that level and hope that the culture as a whole follows. But, you know, Jack, I think we have to kind of ask to some extent compared to what? right? There's always this temptation to believe that we're in this unprecedented cultural collapse. And I right. think you could probably look at any particular period in American history or world history and find plenty of this stuff just in a different era. Uh, the, uh, you know, now it, it might be people on Twitter, uh, you know, and a hundred years ago, it was the people on the radio or, you know, in papers or whatever it is. I think, uh, we sh it's a mistake to think that we're too unique in our failings any more than thinking we're too unique uh, in our successes. And let's move next to talking about what's been happening in, in Portland recently, which has certainly sparked a pretty fierce nationwide reaction. Uh, we all saw the image of the, the Navy officer, a Navy veteran rather approaching the federal officers in, in Portland and, uh, wanting to ask them the question if they felt they were violating the, the Constitution uh, in, uh, in being present in Portland and um, acting in, in the way they, they were. Can you give us a perspective on your take on, on what's happening in Portland and uh, the, the threat maybe of, of similar displays of force happening elsewhere in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, in Portland, you have the federal government sending uh, federal employees of various agencies there uh, ostensibly to enforce laws about not damaging federal property, but it seems really going far more wide-ranging than that. Uh, picking up a lot of people and then releasing them without charges, 
um, arresting people who seem pretty distant from and disconnected from uh, the vandalism to federal property that has happened. And I think that it would be wrong to, so far, knock on wood, to make it too much of a mass movement or a new real policy as opposed to a political move. So far, based on the scale and the types of things I, they are doing, I see it more as a cynical political ploy uh, to rally the base and to try to whip up the sort of law and order votes that Americans have reliably given uh, people. So it, it seems to me that what they're trying to do is to whip up this narrative of lawless Black Lives Matter, Antifa, Marxist terrorists versus the thin blue line of our fine young men and women in law enforcement and kind of drive exactly this uh, discourse to get people to criticize them so that they can say, look, those people over there, they don't like law enforcement. That's why they're criticizing this. So I, I don't know how much of it is a real attempt at a takeover as opposed to a provocation designed to make us have this argument uh, that uh, will sort of uh, drive in the distinctions uh, between the different groups in America. I don't know that it's working. Uh, I think it's rallying the base, but that base was rallied already. Uh, I think it's driving away the people who are opposing uh, this administration, but I think those people were hopelessly opposed already. So I'm not sure it's doing much more than deepening uh, the feelings of the people who are already locked into what their vote's going to be. Let's turn our attention to the Justice Department next. Do you have any reactions to what you've seen happen at the Justice Department under William Barr? It's pretty disturbing. Uh, and I'm referring to the Justice Department interference in uh, the General Flynn prosecution, uh, the Roger Stone prosecution, uh, and other elements uh, arising from various investigations of people connected with the Trump administration. Uh, and I've been saying for a while it would be considerably less upsetting and dangerous if uh, the president would just do what he did when he commuted uh, Roger Stone's sentence. That's a pure exercise of core constitutional presidential power. There's no quarrel about it, and it doesn't taint anything but him. Uh, you might think it's unjust, but he's not um, bending the rules. He's doing something. I, I mean, I can't think of a president in, in the last half century who hasn't made some pardons or commutations that rub people the wrong way, one way or the other. What's more upsetting about the Justice Department is that it's uh, perverting the very uh, process itself. Uh, a process that's supposed to be about you know, two sides come in front of a neutral party. They each state their respective case and the neutral party sorts it out. Corrupting that is something very different. Uh, it's much more that we can't even trust the process anymore as opposed to not trusting the way one guy that we elect and can unelect um, is going to exercise constitutional powers. So the arguments that uh, the Justice Department and specifically uh, Attorney General Barr have made in support of his uh, interference with these cases are simply preposterous to anyone who is familiar with federal criminal law. 
you know, when he said in Congress just the other day that the reason he supported a lower sentence for Roger Stone was that these weren't meat and potatoes crimes and he's kind of old. Well, that's just not what the Justice Department says. It's never been what they've said, including when it's been under the direction of Bill Barr. It's never been Bill Barr's position before. It is a entirely fabricated position uh, and uh, you know, a thin veneer of rationale for coming out in favor of someone who supports the president. And the same thing with the excuses for dismissing the General Flynn case. Uh, they're all excellent arguments for why they thought the charges should be dismissed, but they're defense arguments. They're the types of arguments I make and that uh, defense lawyers make and that the Department of Justice opposes and then get shut down. So uh, when they do this and make arguments that are not even plausible lies, uh, it really does pollute the process. And it's going to be interesting to me, as I see in the coming months and years, when I repeat their arguments in favor of my clients, when I say, Your Honor, my client's 70 and, you know, the Attorney General of the United States of America said that someone that old shouldn't get a long sentence. Look, here, here he is on video. How is the Justice Department going to deal with that type of argument? So. Right. Ken, you wrote a beautiful post on the 4th of July about an experience you had in 1992, uh, where you witnessed Filipino war veterans being sworn in as American citizens. Can you talk a bit more about that experience and what inspired you to write that post? Sure. I was uh, a law student at the time, uh, a judicial extern for a federal judge in Los Angeles, an extern being the, the lowest level in, uh, flunky uh, doing basic legal research for the law clerks. I was clerking for uh, Judge Ronald S.W. Liu, who was the first Chinese American federal judge in the continental United States. Uh, brilliant man uh, and a very fine judge. And one day he just took all the clerks and externs along to a local uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars hall. And we found out here is this naturalization process of these uh, Filipino American soldiers who had fought for us in World War II in the Philippines, been promised citizenship and been denied it for half a century. Uh, and now finally all these old men, because they were old men by then, were being sworn in. Uh, I got to go with Judge Liu into a small um, private room where he did individual naturalizations for people who are too sick to stand, uh, very old men on oxygen, and on cots and stretchers. And then he did the main ceremony. And what struck me so much was uh, this sense of hope, this uh, thing I think we really need now, which is how do we reconcile our love for America with our frank recognition of the things it does wrong? Um, how do we at the same time demand that we do better while still wanting to be a part of this process? And I saw in these men and their families uh, something that I aspired to, which is that they wanted to be Americans. They were proud to be Americans. They were delighted to be naturalized and become official American citizens, which they'd earned a lifetime before. Um, and they weren't giving up the fact that they were treated unfairly. Uh, it's not that they decide, oh, forgive it and forget it. I'm never going to say anything about it again. They had just decided that they were part of a commitment to the right things in America without giving up the wrong things in America. And, you know, I think we can do that. Uh, you see a lot these days, particularly with the, uh, the discourse right now about police abuse and about other social wrongs. 
you see this controversy about whether you can vigorously criticize America and still love it. Um, and I maintain absolutely you can. And uh, that, you know, where we are, have all sorts of examples of people who were direct recipients of great injustice and yet demonstrated every day their love for America. Uh, you know, John Lewis, who just passed away, I think is an excellent example. Someone uh, beaten and nearly killed in the course of what's wrong with America, still very much committed to what's right with it. So to me, it's sort of the project of uh, finding that balance, um, criticizing what's wrong, trying to make it right as part of a shared belief uh, in sort of uh, American values as an aspiration. That is not something that was accomplished in 1776 and never has to be rechecked again. Just underscoring exactly that that quote uh, from the from the post, which I do think is is such an important one and, and resonates so strongly with the the time period we're in right now. Ken, this idea that America should be aspiring to what America should be without abandoning the struggle to right its wrongs, as you as you put it in the the post, it seems like this there's there is this real dichotomy between America believing in what it can be, but still trying to be comfortable in talking about what's what's wrong and what's broken and what needs improved. And it, it feels like even just having a discussion around that is something that people are unable to do, at least in some levels of, uh, of society right now. How do you think we move towards living up to American ideals? And, and what do you think some of the mindset changes that will be required to to get there, because it feels like a, it's a discussion that's having a hard time making progress in the in the environment that we've we've got right now, a very charged environment. So I've always thought that one of the most effective ways to do it is to model it by arguing for the rights of people we don't like, uh, people who oppose us. Um, people who are not on what we call our side. And in the First Amendment arena, there are plenty of opportunities to do that, to say forthrightly, I hate that person's speech, but here's why it's protected by the law. The same in the criminal offense uh, process, you know, where I can say that I very much disagree with General Flynn on policy and on his, the things he did for President Trump, but here's why I think the false statements charges against him were part of a bogus trend in federal criminal law. So I, I think we, we come to this consensus by being committed to uh, defending each other's rights, including the rights of people we don't like. And I think that's a, a very um, old idea. I mean, you can uh, echo it in Lincoln, in the Gettysburg Address, where he talks about it's uh, left to us to uh, be dedicated to our unfinished work in America. I think there's a lot of that unfinished work and being dedicated to it means it's not reaching across the aisle exactly because you don't have to reach across to be somebody's friend or to want to agree to them on policy. You have to reach across to them on the shared things we believe, uh, which are about uh, the rule of law and equality before it, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, due process. It feels like part of what you're you're saying too is is evolving how we disagree and 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 trying to build constructive debate out of that disagreement rather than maybe the the, the polarizing and vitriolic back and forth that we we see mired in right now. 
Sure. I am a little hesitant to advocate that because I have as sharp elbows as anybody on social media. Uh, and certainly if there's anything you can criticize about public discourse, I've done it. Um, but I think that's right. But, you know, I, I don't think Americans are ever going to give up trashing the other side. Um, and I don't entirely know that they should. Uh, they, you know, uh, rough political rhetoric is very American from the right. beginning, the first campaigns uh, for president in the United States. And I don't think it's realistic to aspire to give all that up. But I think that we can do it um, within an agreed upon arena of shared ideas. Uh, and those are those American values and that we should save our harshest condemnation for people who are trying to take us outside of those values to, uh, to argue that the arena itself is illegitimate, that uh, only people who agree with me should have uh, due process or free speech or whatever it is. That's a good way of framing it. Well, Ken, I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion. To, to wrap up, you're, you're a clear example of someone who's using a law degree to achieve both professional and financial success, but also to have real impact on social issues. What advice would you have for members of our audience who are looking to grow their influence and to, to drive social change, which I think is something that's obviously front of mind for a lot of people right now? Uh, my advice would be to put in the work. So there's no, you know, these days, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on quick and easy and technological solutions, you know, search engine optimization or hashtags or whatever it is. I don't think for real long-term success, there's any substitute for putting in the work to demonstrate that you have something worthwhile to say about the things you care about. So, you know, I, I became a first amendment lawyer by deciding to be a first amendment lawyer and writing nearly every day about first amendment and criminal justice issues for years. Uh, and sometimes, you know, people more talented than I got into it quickly and easier than that, but I had to put in the hard work over years to, to make it work. So I think that, um, expressing yourself about the things you care about that you're passionate about, whether in writing or video or whatever your medium is, engaging with other people in that same field and be, being part of a conversation and just putting in the work and not expecting quick, easy results is the way to do it. It's a great way to wrap up. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ken. Really enjoyed our, our conversation. Well, thank you, Jack. It's a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast. 